happening once again, dear church. I would invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy this morning, and to do so, as you're doing so, to stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to find ourselves this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, but I'm, but I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 1, um, just so that we can make sure that we do our best to keep up with what's going on in the context of Paul's letter to Timothy. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I have received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats. Adrian Rogers once quipped, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. An Anglican minister actually said something similar. He observed, 
wherever St. Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. Wherever I go, they serve tea. What are these men putting their fingers on? Well, maybe I can put it this way. I think that they are saying that many pastors wake up each morning with the mindset of a firefighter. They think that their job is to put fires out. But in reality, we ought to wake up with the mindset of an arsonist. Proverbs 28.1 tells us, The righteous are bold as a lion. But if that is true, then why are so many of us pussycats? Why is it that so many Christians purr when we ought to roar? And just to clarify, I'm talking particularly about men, and more to the point, men who would be pastors or aspire to pastors. God's Word tells us that pastors are to be men who are full of courage and who are bold. They are called, at the end of verse 18, to wage the good warfare. Or as another translation puts it, to fight the good fight. So church, I want to submit to you that what the church needs in these days are, are men like this. Not men who will cower, not men who will backpedal, but men who will stand upon the truth of God's word and fight. Really, what we need are pastors. Pastors who will report for duty. In a way, that's really what Paul is calling his young protege, Timothy, too. He must report for duty. Timothy must recognize that there is a battle afoot, and rather than read about that battle on Twitter, he needs to grab his Bible, open it, and actually get in the game. That's really the tone, isn't it? Behind the language of verse 18, behind the Timothy being charged. You see it there in verse 18, right? This charge I entrust to you. What's Paul talking about? What was this charge? Well, remember that we saw this at the very beginning of this letter, didn't we? As I just read to you, verse 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So what's the charge? Well, Paul is saying this, Timothy, you need to stand in the gap. The purity of the church isn't just something you're supposed to pray for. The purity of the church is something that you ought to fight for. There's blood, there's sweat, there's tears involved. And that's because wolves are making meals out of sheep. False teaching is ubiquitous. The truth of the gospel is being maligned. Christ is being prostituted on the altar of men's sinful desires. Timothy, you have to see that the faith once for all delivered to the saints, it is being trampled underfoot. So, Timothy, you must resist. Again, to use the language of verse 18, you must wage the good warfare. This idea is only bolstered in verse 5, where Paul says this, He says, the aim of our charge 
is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, the false teachers who were infecting Timothy's congregation, what resided in their heart was not love, but hate. And when the dam of their heart bursts, what is it that's going to spill over? Well, not a pure heart, but an impure one. Not a good conscience, but a filthy one. Not sincere faith, but false faith. So again, in all of this, Timothy is exhorted by his mentor, Paul. He's charged, really. Timothy, you have to fight. You have to fight for truth. You have to fight for purity. You have to fight for the gospel. But of course, and we saw this several weeks ago now, Timothy is a bit reluctant, isn't he? And can we just acknowledge right now that many of us are as well. Few of us really want to get our hands dirty. We would much prefer to to sit by and not rock the boat. After all, if you rock the boat, you run the risk of getting wet. But Paul's point here is that for the pastor, that attitude is not an option. For the pastor to sit by falsely and lazily in the face of false teaching, it is an abdication of his very duty. Just as no mother would just simply roll over while at the park and let a stranger kidnap her child, so no real pastor will roll over when the flock of God is being shredded. This is why verse 18 reads the way it does. You see it there when Paul brings up this stuff about the prophecies previously made about you. And by the way, we really can't be certain with respect to what is in view here. Most likely what Paul is talking about is is Timothy's consecration to be a pastor or or his ordination or, or something like that. But whatever the event is, whatever the exact details are, The point that Paul is making here is that timid Timothy, he is supposed to look back on that event. It it ought to jolt him. It ought to be a shot in his arm. He needs to be reminded as this young fledging pastor that Paul has his back. That the church, even though he's young and inexperienced, the church really needs him. And no matter how fearful he is, the Spirit of God is with him. This is all supposed to be wind in his sails. This is all supposed to be fuel for the fight. Now, let me add a a real brief caveat so that I'm not misunderstood. Speaking of fighting, we have to recognize... And this is true not just of pastors specifically, but also of men more generally. We have to recognize that while we are called to fight, there are good fights and there are bad fights. In other words, we need to cultivate wisdom and we need to exercise discernment so that we can know which is a mountain and which is a molehill. Because you have to understand that dying on one is noble and dying on the other is a disgrace. And so we have to be very wary Christians, and again, I'm talking specifically to men, we have to be very wary that we don't just fight for fighting's sake. That's not virtuous. 
One of the qualifications, for example, of an elder is that they are, 1 Timothy 3.3, not violent, but gentle. Same thing in 1 Timothy 3.3. Elders are prohibited from being quarrelsome. Later in 1 Timothy, this time 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul warns of those, listen to this language, who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Then in his second letter to Timothy, Paul instructs him this way. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You hear the tone? Gentle, not quarrelsome, correcting with gentleness, not squabbling over words. Here's the deal. Some of you by nature are rowdy. And you might be tempted to read 1 Timothy 1 and think that it just automatically gives you a green light to go smash skulls. And I would just caution you, brother, to pump the brakes. Because this this call to wage war, it has a specific context. We are not given carte blanche to argue and fight over every single little thing. That's not it. And suppose what I'm trying to caution us against is something that Craig Barnes, a Presbyterian pastor in Washington, D.C., experienced. Here's what transpired in his own words. Last spring, the hospitality committee put a little coffee stand in the narthex. The next day, the head usher of 25 years quit in protest, saying this was a sacrilege to the church sanctuary. All the ushers quickly became upset. Since a committee had put the coffee there, the session, and just to clarify, that's Presbyterian language for the elder board. That's what a session is in Presbyterian circles. Since a committee had put the coffee there, the session had to decide on the issue, so they set up a task force that met for eight weeks to listen to the ushers and the hospitality committee. Pastor Barnes continues. One Sunday, a bunch of ushers decided not to show up to usher because we hadn't brought back the head usher yet. So the elders were ticked off at the ushers. You can imagine Pastor Barnes pulling out his hair. This is, the, this is how he ends. In the middle of all of this, I'm not talking about Jesus to anybody. I'm not making hospital calls or shepherding people through grief. I'm trying to figure out whether we should serve coffee in the narthex. Here's the point, church. We ought to wage war. But not everything and not everyone is the enemy. And way too often, people couch the sort of interchurch squabbles that I just read to you. They couch these things in the idea that, that that's what Paul is calling Timothy to, to fight. My friends, that is just immaturity and foolishness. But that doesn't mean that conflict is bad. Because Timothy must, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. 
he must, again, our passage, 1 Timothy 1.18, wage the good warfare. And I should add that the Greek word behind the English word wage there in verse 18, it means to engage in a conflict. So there is built in to the very pastoral office a requirement when necessary to be combative. Probably just not over coffee in the narthex. This is important to highlight because we are increasingly living in an evangelicalism where niceness has become something of the 11th commandment. Everything has to be nuanced. Everything is measured by how winsome we are. But in a lot of ways, our passage this morning is something of a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call because failure to confront false teaching is failure to be a faithful pastor. You understand this, right, church? Shepherds don't pet wolves. They shoot them. That's their job. And they shoot them for the sake of the sheep. J. Gresham Machen, the great 20th century Presbyterian warrior, he understood this quite well. Reflecting upon his own context nearly a century ago, Machen said this, Men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But, Machen countered, if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bibles and desert its teachings. The New Testament, Machen asserts, is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. Machen's point? Preaching is, by necessity, a polemical calling. You cannot, I repeat, cannot wage the good warfare, 1 Timothy 1.18, if you never leave the barracks. It doesn't work that way. Now, at this point, I trust that we've established the reality that Timothy is called to report for duty. But what we have alluded to, and illusion is not sufficient, now we have to be crystal clear about. How is this warfare to be waged? How is this fight fought? And the answer is, this is a spiritual battle, so the means of warfare are spiritual. That is to say, the church does not fight with the physical sword. That has been given to the state. But what we do fight with is the spiritual sword. What Ephesians 6.17 calls the word of God. Or to take up Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, this is a spiritual battle. And so the primary way that Timothy and all Christians will wage war is how? By unsheathing the word of God, chucking its scabbard aside, and going to work. 
or to dispense with the metaphor, this work is done by the teaching and preaching of God's Word. As pragmatic Christians that we are, we have to be reminded of this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is the primary means that God has given us to confront the world and to grow as Christians. So it is through the preaching of the Word that Timothy will resist false teachers. It is through this means that Christ's church will grow and be encouraged. It's through the proclamation of the word that unbelievers will be convicted and converted. And it is through the heralding of God's truth that Christ will be exalted. This is why in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2, he commands him, preach the word. Hear me well. That is the atomic bomb the pastor must drop upon the sin of Hiroshima. It is the Word of God. This is what God has given us. But I would have you to note that this waging of the war, it is more, it's not less, but please hear me, it is more than merely Wagging the tongue. What do I mean? Well, I mean that that faithful ministry, both pastorally and as a Christian, it will entail more than proclaiming the truth. Two, verse 18, to wage the good warfare, one must also, verse 19, do so holding faith and a good conscience. In other words, if you don't have faith or if you don't possess a good conscience, you will not successfully wage the good warfare. Just just as you can't make an omelet without eggs, neither can you fight the good fight without faith and a good conscience. Now, to be clear, let's make sure we understand what Paul means here by faith and a good conscience. When Paul speaks of holding, or or some of your translations might read possessing faith, what he's talking about there is is the very gospel message. He's talking about Christ. He's, He's not talking about your own sort of subjective faith that sort of comes and goes depending upon the weather, right? What he's talking about is the objective faith, who Christ is, what he has done. The the fact that Christ has given himself for us. He's talking about Christ's virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his burial, resurrection, ascension, return. And when Paul is talking about holding that faith, He does not mean just sort of giving mental assent to it. You know what I mean? Just sort of a head, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, fine. No. For Timothy, again, verse 18, to wage the good warfare, for for you and I to fight the good fight, we actually have to entrust ourselves to this Christ. 
It it means that, that we personally trust and treasure Christ. It means that we really do receive him, that we really do rely upon him, that we really do rest in him. To simplify, as Christians, we have to actually believe the things that we proclaim. But that's not all. It's also imperative that Timothy and us, again, back to verse 19, possess or hold, he says, a good conscience. That is to say, we are to be those who walk in accord with the will of God as it is revealed to us in the Word of God. This is where, I mean, just practically speaking, a good conscience comes from, right? When we submit to God's word and we obey God's word, when, when we quit walking in flat-out rebellion to God and his law, what happens in your life? Well, you tend to have a, a good or a clean conscience, practically speaking, right? You, you don't hang your head in shame all the time. And so again, to simplify, as Christians, we have to actually live in light of what we say we believe. So in verse 19, holding faith is our belief in Christ, and holding a good conscience is our behavior as Christians. And Paul's point is simply this. You have to have both. You have to have both. We'll see this later in 1 Timothy, specifically 1 Timothy 4.16, because Paul exhorts Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy, make sure you got your eyes on two things, yourself and your teaching. You hear what Paul is saying? Timothy, you got to watch your faith and you got to watch your life. You got, you got to make sure that what you believe and how you live, that, that it's actually consistent and, and makes sense in light of God's word. We might say tempting today like this, your word and your walk, well, they must align. Your doctrine and your duty must coalesce, right? Your profession and your practice should kiss. Brothers and sisters, what you say with your lips should match how you live your life. So that that really what Paul is warning Timothy against is what I call Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Christians. Unfortunately, I think we all probably know the type, don't we? Those who on a Sunday morning come to church and they they say all the right things and they they sort of act one way, but then come Monday morning, they live an entirely different life. They're hypocrites. And such folks, they not only bring disrepute upon the very name of Christ, that's absolutely true, But Paul's point here is that not only that, but these same folks are destined to lose the war of faith. 
And that is because you cannot, I repeat, cannot wage the good warfare, verse 18, without, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. You have to see, Christian, that they belong together. If a water molecule loses its oxygen atom or a hydrogen atom, then it is no longer water. In the same way, if a Christian loses faith or conscience, then he or she is no longer living as a Christian. Which means we must come to see that the holding of these two treasures, faith and a good conscience, this is not an optional hobby. But in reality, it is a matter of life and death. Thomas Cranmer certainly understand this, understood this. rather. He was a 16th century English reformer and the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was also an eyewitness when Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned alive at the stake for their reformed leanings. If you're familiar for, with Cranmer, you'll know that it wasn't long until he found himself in the crosshairs. And initially, fearing for his life, Cranmer recanted. But his conscience was so convicted and so grieved that he later recanted his recantation. That is to say, he, he came to hold firmly to the truth of God's word in the face of opposition. In his remarks at the trial that would seal his fate, Cranmer said this, speaking of how he had previously signed a letter recanting the truth of God's word. This is what Cranmer said. And forasmuch as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart... Therefore, my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And true to his word, when that fire was lit that would consume his body and escort him into paradise, the first thing that Cranmer did was plunge his hand into the flames and cried out, This unworthy right hand. You see, for Cranmer, holding faith and a good conscience, it was more important than life itself. Friends, it is life itself. Church, this is absolutely critical to see. Given the context of our passage this morning, it's critical to see how necessary this is for waging the good warfare. Without holding faith, without a good conscience, you and I, we are doomed to lose the war. In fact, let me ask you this. What would the autopsy reveal of a fallen soldier who didn't wage the good warfare? Or if I can just switch metaphors, and it's okay because Paul does it in verse 19. What would the autopsy reveal of someone who made shipwreck of their faith? What would it look like, spiritually speaking, to, to cut them open and, and figure out the disease? And I think that most of us would be tempted to think this. Well, 
those who apostatize, those who walk away from Christ, those who wave the white flag, really what it is, it, the autopsy would reveal like unresolved intellectual difficulties. That's what it is, right? We, we, we think it was just some thorny theological dilemma that they just couldn't get squared in their mind. That's not true at all. That's not even true for a moment. Do you know what that autopsy would reveal? It reveals the same thing every time. People turn from Christ, they apostatize, they wave the white flag. They do so not because of some intellectual thing they can't resolve. They do so because of a significant moral compromise. They want to have sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They don't want to do what Christ says about this. They don't like Christ's lordship over here. They don't like the fact that they're not God. That's what it always comes down to. What a spiritual autopsy reveals is people fail to trust Christ and to maintain a good conscience about whatever the thing is. It's always that way. Every person that I've ever known as a Christian who was baptized and who sang the hymns with us and who partook of the Lord's Supper, when they walk away from Christ, it's always because of some moral thing that they want to do and they don't want Jesus to tell them what to do. It's always that way. Every time. And of course, that leads us to Hymenaeus and Alexander, doesn't it? Because these are two, two real-life examples of those who did not wage the good warfare, right? Rather than holding faith and a good conscience, they simply let it go. And as we see, it landed them at the bottom of the ocean, shipwrecked. And again, this is because they failed to believe or do the right thing. Their apostasy, church, was rooted in a failure of heart and of character. So who were these two traitors? And I, I know that's strong language. I'm calling them that for two reasons. They are traitors, firstly, owing to this sort of overriding metaphor that we see throughout of, of war and, and fighting and being a soldier, Right? Paul is calling Timothy to report for duty, to wage war. But Hymenaeus and Alexander, they are turncoats. They are also traitors, secondly, because of how verse 19 portrays them. We read, by rejecting this, by, by rejecting faith, by rejecting a good conscience, by rejecting this. And that verb, rejecting, it describes a deliberate act. Right? These two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they are well aware of what they are doing. Right? This is not an act of ignorance on their part, but an act of high-handed treason. Now, as we reflect upon the sobering reality of treason, let me just pause for a brief moment and make two pretty serious observations. For starters... Many are persuaded that Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders in the church at Ephesus. Now, if that's true, let this be a sober warning. 
No one is above wandering away from the gospel. And that includes pastors, elders, deacons, community group leaders, and even sweet little widows. None of us, I repeat, none of us can just put it on autopilot and coast. We all, each and every one of us, must be vigilant to keep the faith and to hold on to a good conscience. That is to say, we all, each and every one of us, must strive. We must strive to grow in our knowledge of, our love for, our obedience to, and our joy in Christ. If not, we might very well find ourselves like the Titanic, crashing into an iceberg of apostasy. The second observation is this. Notice how Paul is willing to call out by name those who pose a threat to the church's unity. To return to the so-called 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, we have to recognize that truth matters, that the church matters, that the gospel actually matters. And these things matter so much that Paul is more than willing to put pen to paper and to call out these two guys by name. And again, this is all built into, it's all part of verse 18's waging the good warfare. You, you have to have courage. And that means sometimes that you're going to have to, as a Christian, do hard things and make hard decisions. Just as you have to put a toxic sticker on the cleaning supplies so your kids won't drink them. So very often, pastors have to put toxic stickers on false teachers so the congregation does not consume them to their own destruction. I also want you to see in our passage that Paul not only called these men out by name, but he also, verse 20, handed them over to Satan. Now, what on earth does that mean? And while at first it might sound sort of spooky, and please, it is spooky. I'm not saying that it's not. I want you to notice that the closest parallel that we have in the entire New Testament to this language here is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Over in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is calling upon the Corinthian church to treat an unrepentant man in their congregation in a very specific way. He says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Listen to the language. Notice how it's similar. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And the context of 1 Corinthians 5 makes it clear. What Paul is talking about there is the last resort in church discipline, what you and I generally call excommunication. 
And that seems to be the best way to understand what's going on in 1 Timothy as well. Because of Hymenaeus and Alexander's flagrant sin. Because of their false teaching and their false living. Because their belief and behavior is not consistent with what the Bible says a Christian is. Because of this, these two men, they are removed from the church. They are removed from the church's means of grace. But they're not just simply removed from the church and the means of grace and sort of set out into this neutral place. They are removed from the church and handed to Satan. They are now deprived of the means of grace, and now they are exposed to the means of Satan's destruction. And if the whole thing sounds terrifying, it's supposed to. It is terrifying. It's supposed to be that way. But, and please hear this, we have to understand as a church that even in excommunication, even then, the intent is not to harm, but to heal. What do I mean? Well, I mean that excommunication in general, and when it comes to Paul's dealings with Hymenaeus and Alexander in particular, Church discipline is not this idea of being mean or vindictive or just not liking somebody or wanting to throw your weight around or something like that. No. Church discipline always, it always, it must have as one of its aims restoration. And we can see that even in our passage. I say that because put your eyes on verse 20 once more. We read there, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And what Paul does here is he reveals to us one of the purposes of church discipline, doesn't he? He tells us that these men were excommunicated. They were taken out from under the authority of the church. They were handed over to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. And that verb learn, it's actually a positive word, meaning to instruct, to train, and to correct. Here's the point. Paul longs for these two men to repent of their sinful ways and to be restored into the community of faith. And what we have to understand, church, is that church discipline might very well be what God uses to accomplish that purpose. You see, we tend to think that church discipline, we tend to think that excommunication, it's bad, it's dirty, it's ugly, it ostracizes people. And that's all true if the Spirit of God wasn't real, right? Because when we obey God, when we do things Jesus' way, Jesus makes promises. And we trust that church discipline is something that Christ would have us to do for the good of the church and for the good of the man or woman who is being disciplined. We trust that God works through these things to accomplish his purposes. 
And just at a very practical level, we have to bear in mind that for some, it takes being cast overboard into the sea to realize the advantages of actually being on board the ship. So, I hope you see, church, that in a lot of ways, this is all connected. From, from proclaiming God's word to keeping the faith. From a good conscience to having the courage to exercise church discipline. This is all connected. It's all part of verse 18's waging the good warfare. Right? If, if Timothy has all the oration skills in the world, but he lacks a spine, then he will not wage the good warfare. Or if he has faith that can move a mountain, but he lives like the devil in his private life, then he will not fight the good fight. It's all connected. It's the muscles and the tissue and the sinews. Yes, they're all distinct, but they are joined together. And that was true for Timothy, and it's also true for us. It's true for pastors, it's true for men, and it's true for this congregation. We must be a people who fight the good fight. So here's my exhortation to you. Christian, cultivate in your heart a trust for Christ. Like, really, deeply, an actual trust for Christ. Seek to overcome your fears and engage those around you with the gospel. Let me ask you, when is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, your Savior. Be vigilant to eliminate anything and everything that keeps you from growing in your fear of God. And then, when you go home today, and you go back to the grind tomorrow, do so as a Christian. Do so with a good conscience. Do so clinging to the utter sufficiency of Christ crucified for you. And as you do this, know for certain that the bottom of the ocean is full of the bones of the Hymenaeuses and Alexanders of the world, those who made shipwreck of their faith. So Christian, don't be like them, don't follow them, don't even flirt with them. Instead, wage the good warfare and hold faith and a good conscience. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for the, both the privilege and the responsibility of sitting under the proclamation of your word this morning. Just as you caused the rain to go forth and water the mountains and bring forth its seed, so we trust that as your word has gone forth this morning, so it will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it forth. We would ask you that through the proclamation of your word and as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord this morning, 
that you would be causing our faith in Christ to increase and for us to walk with a good and clean conscience before you. We pray that your Spirit would further cause our eyes to be fixed upon Christ. We pray that we would truly love him and trust him, that we would see him placarded upon that cross before our very eyes, and that your Spirit would engender faith in us as a result. We pray that we would grow in our love for one another. We pray for meaningful relationships among us. We pray for accountability and for truth and for relationships in which we help one another walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And we pray that your Spirit would convict us when we sin and where we sin, and that that same Spirit would direct us to Christ, our Savior of sinners. We pray these things for our good and for the glory of your Son, and it is his name that we pray. Amen.